Welcome to Deathly Afraid Podcast. I'm Whitley. And I'm Brian. And I don't know. I'm super freaking excited. I don't know what else to say. It is exciting. Very exciting, actually. (laughs) We are doing a true crime paranormal podcast. So if that's your thing, you're in the right spot. Right spot. (laughs) We know about the right spot. Um. Are you going to go first this time, or am I going to go first this time? Do, 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 do. I'm going to go first. Yes. Get it out of the way. Ryan is going first. I am in charge of the everything paranormal. And today I have two shorter stories of paranormal. The first one is about the ghost of Deer Island and the Firewater Ghost. So, the ghost of Deer Island and the Firewater Ghost. Humans have visited or lived on Deer Island for thousands of years, dating back to ancient American Indians, which came to hunt, gather, and fish. The French arrived on the island in 1717, And by 1905, the Americans had operated an amusement park on the island. What is the amusement park? Do you know? I could not find a name on what it was called. They just said it was an amusement park. Was it? Do you know if it was like like a Disneyland or like was it just like? I guess more of like the carnival, go and set up the rides and tear down kind of an amusement park. Okay, cool. This is the feeling I got from it anyway. But um, Hurricane Camille kind of destroyed all the structures and forced all the humans to evacuate the island. So there's no more amusement park that's gone? Correct. Yeah, right now, I mean, the island's just abandoned. a large abandoned island that has just pretty much wild game and i think underneath the island is kind of turned into a reef almost with lots of fish and habitants under the water that would make sense for a reef and so i guess the reason it's called deer island is back in the day it was kind of connected to biloxi mississippi and so deer kind of just inhabited the island there were so many that they just named it deer island after that fact so how the ghost of deer island came about the tale of two fishermen staying the night on the island so they could go out fishing the next morning started a campfire to pick up their meal and they heard some shaking in the palmetto bushes 
and didn't think anything of it. Thought maybe it was just some wild hogs on the island. Wasn't really a breeze or anything that would cause the bushes to kind of move like they were and sat there for a little bit longer and just continued to get louder and louder and shake longer and like well let's go check out and see what's going on and walked over to the bushes come to find out they were face to face with the headless skeleton staring standing there come to find out (laughs) that would be pretty terrifying actually Kind of hard to be face to face with the headless skeleton, though. Especially because it doesn't have a face. <laughs> anyway, so once they seen this skeleton in the bushes just standing there, they fled to their boat, looking back over their shoulders as they're running, seeing the skeleton to be chasing them. And got in their boats, went away for the night, and came back the next morning to collect all their fishing poles and gear they had left on the island that night because. They're too scared to go back. Yes, um, they should be. <laughs> yeah. So there haven't been any recent guess, sightings or cases of people going to the island and seeing this ghost. There. So was that the only time anyone had seen it? Or has there been like other people that have seen the same thing? So there have been two cases that I found of fishermen staying the night on the island and having the same exact experience with the bushes moving thinking it's an animal, and they go check it out to see the skeleton standing there. But there's only been two two stories so far that I've found that, that they were able to come face-to-face yeah. with a headless skeleton. Yeah, face-to-face <laughs> with a headless skeleton. So the story behind this headless skeleton is that a long time ago, there was a pirate ship that had... Stolen some treasure from people and wanted to bury it somewhere. And they thought that this deer island would be a good place to bury the treasure. So they sailed their ship to the island. The captain, crew, everybody helped bury the treasure. And the captain asked the crew if there was somebody that would be willing to stay and guard this buried treasure so nobody could just come take it. One guy's like, Yeah, that doesn't sound too bad. I'll. Go ahead and stay and guard the treasure. I'll hang out by myself and steal your treasure. Be here on an island by myself. (laughs) Well, the guy kind of got screwed over because next thing you know, the captain had one of the, I believe he said it was the lieutenant's, the guy's head off who was guarding the treasure and threw his head in the bushes. So how is he supposed to guard treasure if he has no head? Apparently, he's doing a very good job being a skeleton with no head guarding the treasure. I think he's in the bush looking for his dang head. He might be looking for his head. I mean, that's where they threw his head. So, (laughs) all right. All right. So, with that in mind, the ghost of Deer Island also is said to be responsible for mysterious lights and strange sounds that people can hear between Ocean City and Biloxi, Mississippi. They said sitting out there at night, you can see flashes of lights out on the island and they hear like weird, mysterious sounds. Like when they don't see anything out there. Animal sounds are just just boop, like boop, boop, beep, boop, boop, boop. definitely not robot sounds. <laughs> It's not Mr. Krabs? No, it's not Mr. Krabs out there. <laughs> but, my opinion, the lights are from this next ghost in the same area, also known as the Firewater Ghost. Like, 
I like to drink fire water because it makes me feel good, fire water. Not that kind of fire water. So how he got his name is people before electricity have seen in between, in the bay between Biloxi, Mississippi and Ocean Springs, have seen (laughs) a blue light like hovering above the water about, they said it was about a foot off the water and it kind of looked like the flame from a... Like a lan- old time lantern, and some people have even said that they could see like a ghost walking around holding a lantern, pretty much just patrolling the bay area between the two cities. Okay, so like, do they think it's the headless skeleton doing it, or do they think it's a whole another entity? They think it's a whole another entity. Okay, but I mean, the first sightings were, as I said, back before electricity, so they didn't think this could be. Just a boat out there or anything like that. And there was a... Well, I mean, it could be a boat, just not like a yeah. flashlight or something. Yeah, not a flashlight. Okay. But there was a guy on a boat fishing, and he said he was out there just the fishing around the bay and looked up and had seen this little blue orb kind of floating out in the middle of nowhere and went to investigate and said it kind of went around the deer island and then just disappeared. The light did? Yeah. Okay. So. And so, like, has there been any recent sightings of this, or is this just, like... No, so for the Ghost of Deer Island and the Firewater Ghost, there have been no recent sightings for either of these, at least in the 21st century. Okay. So, it's like, kind of like old folk tales, or... Yeah, so it was early 1900s, between 1905 and 1920-ish. Okay. So, yeah, that's it for the Ghost of Deer Island and the Firewater Ghost. So this next story I have is about the Chislehurst Caves in the United Kingdom. Have you heard about these before? I've never heard about these, actually. So these are actually sound really cool and are a tourist attraction that we should someday go to. It is in the UK? Yes. I am down for anything in the UK. Yeah, so the Chislehurst Caves are located in Chislehurst, Kent, in the United Kingdom, and are said to be man-made, covering the span of about 8,000 years ago. They man-made the caves 8,000 years ago? Yeah. That's a lot of work. Yeah, so originally, the nearly 20 miles of caves served local miners in finding coal and flint to use in everyday lives. So they were, it was pretty much like a... Mining caves that got turned into just caves that people used all the time. Okay. For mining? Well, after mining. (laughs) So after the mining, about when World War II took off, many people... really took off. Yeah, it took off. Many people used the caves to hide from the explosions and bullets being shot above. So it was kind of like a a bunker of some sorts. So they said it was... I want to say like eight meters. I don't know how far that is, but long or deep below yeah. like okay. the house, all the housing and stuff. And, that would be a good place to hide from bullets, right? And um, so during the war, over fifteen thousand people used the caves to socialize and live day to day to avoid being shot at. So it was like a little hop in town, pretty much. Yeah, and they had to pay. It was like a pound per night, they said, to stay down there. So they're like, you can be safe 
But you gotta pay to be safe. I would pay to not be shot at. Well, yeah, but it's kind of rude. <laughs> <laughs> it is what it is. This is my opportunity to make some money. Yeah. So, during World War II, they had all sorts of amenities down in these caves. They had cots for the people to sleep in. They had food. And they had music and dancing. They had a hospital wing in the cave. But for whatever reason, they didn't plan that out very well. And... They put it in a part of the cave that was hard to get the sick and wounded to. And so they would always die before they would get to the hospital wing. I don't know why like, they didn't find it the up hospital, there. but let's put it like down at the bottom. Yeah, right. We're going to go down like 500 flights of stairs and. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. Was let's not backpack very, in. was not very well planned out, I guess. But, um,. One thing I did find is a lot of people, when they have gone and visited this Chislehurst cave, said that they hear and have even seen spirits of children, which is kind of creepy. I don't know why ghost children are creepier than ghost adults, but... Because usually, like, I feel like ghost kids are, like, portrayed as, like, little demons. I mean, they're demons when they're alive. We've got three of them. Right. We know. <laughs> but, yeah, I agree. Ghost kids are the worst. Yeah, so, I mean, everybody that's heard and seen these spirits of the children down in the caves said that a lot of the noise they heard was, like, playful laughter, talking of children. They've even seen, like, full-body apparitions and mists. I don't know why. But I feel like laughter is the creepiest. Right. I'd be more afraid of laughter instead of a ghost is like. <laughs> I think if I was like walking through the cave by myself, I just hear some giggling. I'd be like, I'm getting the heck out of here. Right. So a cool fact about the cave is um, for a while, every year at Halloween, they would offer a challenge to anyone who could stay at night in the caves. They would win money for staying full night in the caves. With the demon children? Well, with, yeah, with all the ghosts and everything okay. that were in there. But after a long time of no one being able to defeat the challenge, they ended up shutting the challenge down due to safety concerns. So, like, were people getting hurt in the challenge? Or they were just getting scared of running away? Say, so, everything that I could find was... Most people, like, like, yeah, we can stay down here, would make it a couple hours, and then they'd tap out, like, no, I can't do this anymore. That's crazy. And then the creepy thing is, like, I would probably only make it a couple hours, too, because the owners of the caves set up, like, dummy mannequins down in the caves, <laughs> where, like, Normally, people would congregate a long time ago when it was inhabited by people. Okay, so it's like a, like they set up a scene to show you what it would have been like? Kind of, yeah. Okay. But... Like a museum, almost. Kind of, yeah, kind of like a museum. Okay, okay. And people, though, have said that they see these mannequins move on their own. And so, like, not only is it you're dealing with, like, ghosts and crap down there, you got freaking mannequins. Ghost kids and moving mannequins. That's, like, That's a nightmare. I'm, I'm out. <laughs> it's a perfect nightmare. I'm, I'm not going in there at night. But they do offer like day and night tours. 
Honestly, I think the night tour would be fun. I think it would be a cool experience. That would scare the crap out of you, though. I but that's like. the point. Like, isn't that the point of you want to go to like a haunted spot because you want to be scared? It's not like that's true. I don't. When I think of like haunted things and haunted houses, I want to be able to experience something. And be like, heck yeah, that is haunted, yeah. and I experienced it. I think it'd be fun to try and do like the overnight thing, but I'd be like, I'm just gonna go to sleep as soon as possible. <laughs> Maybe like freaking ghost you wake kids up to giggling? Up or something. Yeah. Ghost kids standing over me giggling or something. Or the mannequin standing over you with the ghost kid giggling. Yeah. Just the mannequin doing the robot or something. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, that is it for my paranormal. Paranormal for this week. If I can say it right. <laughs> paranormal. Paranorman. Par- paranormal normal. Yeah. All right. Well. I actually liked those. They were very good. I tried very hard. <laughs> you did a good job. My story, you're going to be surprised because it's not the one you thought it was. What? <laughs> <laughs> I am doing The Disappearance of Susan Powell. I think you've heard this before, have you? I don't think I have. If I have, it's been a long time ago and I do not remember. Right. The only reason I think you have is because, like, I was obsessed with it for a while. I listened to all the cold case episodes. They did a great podcast. It was like a whole series. It was awesome. It is a missing woman from Utah. I don't remember if I remember this one. Okay. We're about to learn. Perfect. Okay. So we're going to start right in the middle of everything. On December 7th, 2009, Teresa Powell called the police and reported her son and his family missing. The reason she called to report them missing is the pals never showed up that morning to drop their kids off at daycare, which was very unusual for them. Um, Susan was always super like on time and very communicative with the daycare. She would let them know like, hey, we're not going to be there, whatever. So it was very unusual for her to not like tell them that they weren't going to be there. Um, the daycare, the head of the daycare was like, okay, hey, this is weird. So she tried to reach out to Susan and Josh and was unable to get a hold of either of them. At this point, she decided that she was going to contact the kids' emergency contacts, which was Josh's mother, Teresa Powell, and his sister, Jennifer Graves. Um, Jennifer and Teresa tried to contact Susan and Josh, but they were unable to. They'd called them quite a few times, no answer. Um, At that point, they decided to go to their house. And look for them. But when they got there, nobody was there. So at this point is when Teresa decided, you know, we need to call the police and figure out what's going on. So they called the police. The police come to the house. And I guess at that time, like, they were having issues in the area with, like, carbon monoxide leaks in different homes. So with Teresa and Jennifer's permission, the, the cops actually broke into the home. Just worried that, hey, maybe there was a carbon monoxide leak. We need to get in there and figure it out if there is. Um, When they got in, nobody was home. That's weird. But what they did find was the couch had been freshly cleaned and had two box fans blowing on it to dry it, which super sketchy, right? Like, what's going on? The whole house was completely locked up and, like, everybody was gone, but all of Susan's belongings were there, like her purse and all this, all her, like, stuff that she would take if she was going to work or whatever. Yeah. The only thing that was missing was her cell phone. So it's just 
The whole thing was so weird. At this point, the police listed the family as a missing persons case. They're like, okay, something's going on. They checked with their work. No one had showed up to work. They didn't drop the kids off. No one can get a hold of them. So family and friends, like, throughout the day, continue to try to reach out to them, try to get a hold of them. We're constantly calling them. They, like I said, they checked with all their works. Neither of them had called in. At one point in the day, one of their neighbors was able to make contact with Josh. And when she was when she finally contacted him, she's like, hey, you know, what's going on? Everyone's looking for you. The police are looking for you. You know, you guys are considered missing people, you know. And he goes, oh, you know, I decided to take the boys camping last night. Now, granted, this is in December in Utah. Not a time when you want to go camping. Also, it's in the middle of a blizzard. Definitely not a time to go camping. <laughs> not a time to go camping at midnight. So he tells the neighbor, you know, midnight, kids wanted to make s'mores. So I decided to take them camping. And she's like, well, what about Susan? And he's like, no, Susan should be at work. And they're like, she's telling him, no, Susan didn't show up to work. You know, you really need to get home. The police are here and everyone's been looking for you. Everyone's super worried. And so he's like, okay, you know, I'm on my, I'm on my way home. I, I'm going to stop and feed the kids first. So she's like, okay, you know, kind of weird. I just told you the police are here, but whatever. So they hang up. When they hang up, Josh turns around and drives 20 minutes in the opposite direction of their home. That's kind of weird. And calls Susan's cell phone and says, hey, you know, just wanted to let you know we're on our way home. And I hope you made it to work okay. He was just told by the neighbor that she never went to work. He knows she never went to work. That's kind of sus. <laughs> right? <laughs> Around 5 p.m., Josh and the boys finally get home. So granted, the neighbor had got a hold of them like probably like afternoon-ish. He doesn't get home till 5 p.m. Seems With super worried. <laughs> right? He didn't seem concerned at all when they were like, no, she never made it to work. So, 5 p.m., he gets home. At this point, you know, the police are like, hey, what's going on? Where's Susan? And he's all, oh, she should be at work. And there, again, Susan didn't go to work. Probably know. scared of Susan. Susan. <laughs> um, so, at this point, police are like, you know, we're going to need you to come down the station. We're going to have some questions for you, right? Yeah. So, again, they're asking him. You know, where's Susan? Where have you been? Whatever. You know, he tells them, the boys wanted to make s'mores last night. Decided, you know, midnight, take them camping up at Simpson Springs because they wanted to make s'mores. Again, December, blizzard outside. Midnight. Midnight. I would not get my kids out of bed at midnight. Go back to bed. We'll <laughs> I'd make be like, s'mores tomorrow. You're not getting s'mores. Get your ass in bed. <laughs> you can make s'mores in the house. Right? You can make s'mores in the oven. Right? Like, you you, you don't, don't need go in a blizzard. to drive. Yeah, you don't need to drive in a blizzard to go make s'mores. Just none of his story makes sense. The whole time, you're just going to be like, what is wrong with this man? <laughs> Again, he's telling them Susan should be at work. And they're like, dude, for the 500th time, Susan did not go to work. You don't seem concerned about your wife. Right. Right? 
and it's a blizzard outside. You know, why are you going camping? So they kind of figure, you know, they're not getting anywhere with him. He's telling them, you know, when he left, Susan was was asleep. Um, then they're asking him um, why he didn't notify his work that he wasn't coming in that day. And he tells them, I thought it was Sunday. I didn't know it was Monday. Yeah. That makes complete sense. Right? <laughs> but then again, who goes camping at midnight in a, in a blizzard. blizzard? So, um, and then at this point, he, he asks him, you know, are we done? Can I go home? Like, I'm done. So he's he's just done with the interview. Nice, he's tired. He's been <laughs> awake since midnight. <laughs> right. Driving around. Has no concern, really, that Susan is missing. The next day, the police actually go out to Simpson Springs, um, where Josh said they had camped, like he had told them where he'd gone. Yeah. There was no evidence that anyone had been there at this campsite, let alone Josh and the boys. Obviously, it's a blizzard. They'd be able to see tire tracks. They'd be able to see footprints. They'd be able to see if there was a fire. Nothing. There was no evidence that they went camping there. They then scheduled him for a formal interview for the next day after the first interview, right? So the next day after. In the morning, when his mom and sister go to his house, he's just there cleaning his house and his car, which is super unusual, first of all, because... As you will find out through the story, this man does not do anything. <laughs> he does not cook. He does not clean. Susan does everything. He just goes camping. At he goes camping at midnight. That's his thing. <laughs> <laughs> he is cleaning his house. He's cleaning his car. And they're like, what are you doing? You're supposed to be at your interview. You need to go. You know, so he shows up to his interview four hours late. Gotta have a clean car in a blizzard, though. <laughs> or it won't drive. Right? Well, he shows up. No explanation. Just, I'm here. Four hours late. Whatever. Just has no regard for anybody else. So they had found out that he had called Susan, you know, and her cell phone was in his car the whole time. The whole time he had her cell phone. And they ask him they're like you know why did you call susan when you had her phone the whole time and he's just like oh i didn't know it was in the van i'm sorry but if i'm calling my phone or calling your phone in the car yeah even if it's on silent you're gonna hear it vibrate and we're like oh dang i got the phone yeah right you would think he had to have known he had the phone it just doesn't make sense that doesn't seem to know a lot. <laughs> He's not good at his stories. Then they asked him, you know, hey, was Susan suicidal? Did she have any enemies? Can you think of anything, you know, that would have happened to her? Yeah. And it's like they said this and he took it as like an opportunity. It was like, oh, yeah, she was suicidal for sure. Oh, yeah. Which everybody else, you know, that she knew, family, friends, whatever, was like, no. That's not even a little bit true. Like, not even true at all. Yeah. She was never. When they were finishing the interview, they let him know that, hey, just you know, we had a search warrant for your home and your car. Um, We're actually currently doing the search of your car right now. It'll be done in about 15 minutes, and then you can leave. So if you just want to, you know, go sit in the waiting area or whatever, we'll come get you when it's done. Instead of waiting the 15 minutes it would have took them to finish searching his car, Josh got himself a taxi, 
went to the airport and got a rental car. He then was missing, like, just disappears for 20 hours. Nobody knows where he's at. I don't get a hold of him. So does somebody have his kids? One of the s'mores? Um, his mom and his sister, I believe, had gone to his house. And they're like, oh, okay. For 20 hours, he's gone. And he puts over 800 miles on this rental car in 20 hours. Holy crap. Yes. That's a lot of mileage. Yes. And nobody knows where he's gone. Like, this is just a missing 20 hours. Nobody knows. The police find out that the same 20 hours that he is missing, his father also has disappeared and his phone's been turned off for this whole same time. Which is super sketchy. They're just like, okay, this is weird. You know? He's disappeared. His dad's disappeared. The police decide, like, they learn this and they decide, you know what? We're going to interview Steve Powell, which is his father. And they find out that Steve has had a very real, very creepy obsession with Susan. He admits to having deep feelings for Susan. And he even tells the police that um, she, quote, craved his attention. Did he do magic for Susan's? (laughs) He was not that cool. He was super creepy. They find out that in the early days of Josh and Susan's marriage, that they lived with Steve for a short time. During this time, Steve would constantly record Susan, like camcord, right? (laughs) And he would take pictures of her without her knowledge. He would even spy on her in the back. He'd stolen like her underwear, different garments, whatever. Just super creepy weird stuff (laughs) yeah that is super creepy (laughs) and so like at one point steve had confessed his feelings to susan who was of course shocked and rejected him and just was completely creeped out shortly after this you know susan told josh you know i'm super uncomfortable this is weird They ended up moving to West Valley, Utah, which is where their home was when she went missing. Okay. So when the police were searching the Powell's home, they found traces of Susan's blood along with an unidentified man's. They found a $1.5 million life insurance policy Josh had taken out on Susan. A handwritten, like, kind of like a last will, a testament type of thing. Yeah. Written by Susan, and in it, it stated, I want it, this is a quote, I want it documented that there is extreme turmoil in our marriage, and if I die, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like an accident. So she knew something was up. She was afraid for her life, yes. She knew some, like, she just knew something bad was happening. That sucks. Yeah. She had also made a video recording, and you can actually find this online. Um, I watched part of it. I didn't watch the whole thing, but she's kind of just walking through the house, um, listing all of their assets. Like, But as she's going through it, she's kind of like, this is Josh's TV, and this is Josh's whatever. You know, everything's Josh's. Yeah. And then, like, she'll come across, like, damage in the house or whatever and she'd be like oh josh did that when he was mad or you know so 
he had a temper. He had a bad temper. So now we're just going to kind of go back. I want to talk about like Josh's upbringing and what his life was growing up and how he was. Okay. Josh was born on January 20th. Hey, Creed's birthday. Yeah. Or Creed has to share a birthday with this man. <laughs> he he was born in Puyallup, Washington. His parents are Steve and Teresa, Teresa Powell. His parents had a very dysfunctional marriage. His father was very abusive, and he also hated the LDS church, which Josh's mother belonged to. They were active in the church. Um, Josh was, you know, on and off growing up as a teenager, you know, rebellion, whatever. Yeah. His parents divorced in 1992. Josh allegedly, growing up, he had killed his sister's gerbils and also threatened his mother with a butcher's knife. Definitely sounds like a serial killer. He sounds psychotic. Um, he also attempted suicide at least once, I read in one of the articles. So, not really sure how, just said that he'd attempted it once. So, his life growing up wasn't right. wasn't happy, right? <laughs> um, also, his father so used to his farger. <laughs> <laughs> used to show him and his brother pornography which kind of weird it's super freaking weird right like could you imagine your dad being like i mean well, maybe <laughs> remember my, my grandpa's dad? house at thanksgiving i do remember your grandpa's house at thanksgiving so in late 1990 josh actually lived in seattle and attended the university of washington and at this point, he had began a relationship with a young woman named Terry Everett. They met at a LDS church meeting. Shortly after this, they moved in together. Which, if anyone's familiar with the LDS religion, is a little weird that they're living together. Not Outside married. Marriage, <laughs> but they lived together. Um, after they moved in together, Josh became very possessive of Terry. She was not allowed to even visit her family without him going. Like, just really wanted to control her life. Um, at one point, she was able to go and visit a friend by herself. Uh, she went on a trip to Utah to visit them. And it was at this point she decided not to return home from Utah. Smart <laughs> right? That was probably the best decision she ever made. <laughs> she called Josh at this point and ended the relationship. So. Um, after this, in November of 2000, Josh met Susan Cox. It was during a dinner party that he had hosted at his Tacoma apartment for his LDS Church Institute course. Huh. Um, they actually hit it off right away, and after dating for only two short months, the two got engaged and were married in April of 2001 in the Portland Temple. A lot of things that I read and heard is this is the point where they say, oh, my gosh, that was so fast. How could you know you love someone after two months? This, this is the point where I get to tell everyone. Brian and I dated for three weeks before we got engaged and we got married in six months. And we've been happily married for 13 years. 13 now. years. We're on our 14th year. So. While it didn't work out for Josh and Susan, it does work for some people. <laughs> so they got married in the Portland Temple in 2001. 
After the couple had moved to West Valley, Susan started working at Wells Fargo Investments. Um, Diego was really kind of like the breadwinner in the relationship. He had a hard time holding down a job. He really didn't have, like, he'd gone to university, but he never really stuck to one, like, job. Yeah, I don't know how else to explain that, but he did have a hard time keeping a job. Um, In 2005, they had their first son, Charles, who they called Charlie. And then two years later, in 2007, they had Brayden. Josh had become very controlling in the relationship. What? Right? We've heard this before. (laughs) So he started controlling every aspect of their life. He would monitor every cent Susan would spend, even though she's the one really bringing in the money. He's controlling all of it. Like, he would only give her small amounts of money for grocery shopping. He would complain that the kids eat too much food. They're getting food at daycare. They don't need to eat this much food. Like, he would even say that they can share a hot dog. They don't need their own hot dog. That's kind of messed up. Right? I mean, they're they're two and four. Granted, two and four-year-olds. They don't, don't, they don't eat a ton anyway, yeah. and he wants to even feed them less. So I'm like, and it's just for control. It's pure control. Yeah. <laughs> well, I gotta eat to grow. Right? And so he's even going as far as making Susan knit her own dang socks. Like, she couldn't buy socks. She had to knit her own socks. If you told me to knit my own socks, I might choke you out with a pair of socks. <laughs> I, I will knit them, choke you with them, choke you with them, and then this episode's about me now. <laughs> but even back to the food thing, Susan would have to go and ask family and friends for food to feed her kids. Like, and he just didn't care. He just wanted to control everything. They also only had like the one van, just that was their vehicle, and Josh wouldn't let Susan drive it. She had to bike. To work every day, seven miles each way. That sucks. In a blizzard. At the same time, it is. She was probably very well built, right? Or at least had some like massive calves or something <laughs> from biking all the time, right? There's an upside to your husband being an ass. You, you look good. While Josh was, you know, controlling her money. He was spending exuberant amounts of money on himself, like computers and just all this stuff that he wanted. He was spending all this money. He had put the family in over $200,000 in debt, and they had to claim bankruptcy because of all the money he's spending when she can't even buy her kids food. So how did he get that much money to spend, like just loans or... Uh, I didn't really say. I'm assuming there's probably a lot of credit cards. Yeah. You know, they have spending all their monies. <laughs> he also began to refuse to attend church with Susan, which also put a strain on their marriage. You know, they're married in the temple. That's something that she's really, uh, she's really into the their their religion. Yeah. And she also went into this marriage. Under the assumption that he is also super super into this religion and believes all this. So 
that's putting a strain on their marriage as well as him being controlling her. <laughs> um, at one point, the couple did attend counseling, which Josh rarely ever participated in when they were there and then just stopped going altogether. So, I mean, he's really working on it's being a good husband. <laughs> on December 6, 2009, so the day before the disappearance, Susan had ta- taken the boys to church, and then when they came home, um, their neighbor from church came back with them to visit. Um, she noticed that Josh was in the kitchen cooking pancakes, which was weird because, you know, he never cooked, and Susan did all the cooking and cleaning, so she was kind of like, huh, weird. So he wasn't in the kitchen cleaning a dish? Definitely probably not cleaning a dish. <laughs> she left about 5 p.m., and it was at this point that jo- Josh decided, you know, He's going to take the boys sledding, you know, and he was really rushing to get out the door, you know, following her out the door, getting out. And this was the last time anyone outside the family saw Susan Powell. So that was, you know, the last sighting. Another neighbor, you know, around 830 that night saw Josh getting home, pulling into his garage, um, but never saw Susan after that. After Susan's disappearance, the police actually interviewed their four-year-old, Charlie who told the police that Susan did go camping with them, but she did not come home with them. Well, the dad went and buried her somewhere. That's <laughs> what it sounds like. Charlie also told his teacher that his mom was dead. And Brayden had drawn a picture in daycare of the family in the van and told the teacher, mommy's in the trunk. So, I mean, these poor kids have obviously seen some stuff that yeah. no kid should ever see. Right? Uh, January of 2010, a few weeks after Susan's disappearance, Josh actually packed up the home and moved the boys back to Puyallup, Washington with his father, his sister, Alina, and his brother, Michael. Um, a year after Susan's disappearance, Josh and Steve actually put up a website called SusanPowell.org. And this website basically paints Josh as this victim of a smear smear campaign that is led by Susan's family, his sister Jennifer, and the LDS Church. Like, they're just trying to ruin him, you know? What is a smear campaign? Like, basically, they're trying to ruin his name. Like, they're saying all this stuff that's not true with him. You know, so um, also at one point I read this and now I can't remember which place I read it, but his brother, Michael, had this car. They had driven and broke down. They had it taken to a junkyard that would destroy it. They wanted to make sure it was one that would destroy it. And um, when police found this out, they actually took like diver dogs and they just they didn't show the dogs the car the dogs went straight to his car and alerted his trunk dang that there would there was human remains they were not able to find anything in the trunk and when they had it tested the results came back as inconclusive so nothing actually came of it but Super sketchy, right? Nonetheless, you know. <laughs> so they have this website up, and in the website, they claim 
Susan had run off to Brazil with a man named Stephen Kocher, who went missing the same week as Susan. They're saying, you know, she had an affair with this man and ran off to Brazil with him. And there's literally zero evidence that Susan ever knew this man. I think he went missing in um, Colorado. <laughs> and That's she's weird. in Utah, yeah. you know. So it's just like they're grasping at any straws. Like, what can we say? They claimed that she had abandoned her kids and family due to mental illness. So now she's, you know, she's having an affair. She's mentally ill. They're just making her seem like this horrible person in yeah. this website. They also claimed that they were going to release journals from when Susan was a teenager that really just made her out to look like this sexual deviant. Like, she's just just not a good person. <laughs> um, luckily, Susan's family had fought this and um, brought it to a court. And the judge actually forbid the publishing of these journals and told Josh to either destroy them or give them back to Susan's family. That's good of the judge. Yeah, so at least that didn't happen, but still, crappy situation. And also, like, tensions are starting to get super high between, you know, Susan's family and Josh's family, you know. They're yeah. making her their daughter seem like this horrible person. She's missing. She can't defend herself. And it's looking really sketchy for Josh. Yeah. Then in 2011... Steve, Josh's father, was being investigated and police found over 4,500 images of different women taken without their consent. There were um, like close-ups of certain body parts. There was pictures of Susan in these pictures. And all of them were just like not great pictures. You know, yeah. <laughs> so at this point, Steve was arrested for voyeurism and child pornography from what they found on his computer. Good. Right. <laughs> Just wonderful for everyone involved. Chuck Cox, which is Susan's father, had at this point filed for custody of the kids. And they were actually awarded tem temporary custody because of like everything's going on with Steve. Yeah. You know, and Josh lives there. And so they basically told Josh, you know, you need to not live there. It's not a good environment for the kids. Yeah. Um, he had rented a house, but it was never proved that he actually moved in. He just did it to kind of appease the judge or whatever. Yeah. Um, at some point, Josh's computer was confiscated and investigated. And they found um, images of simulated child pornography. And incest. And he's Be not from Alabama? <laughs> nope. And because they were simulated, he was not able to be arrested. So it was like more like cartoons, drawings. They weren't real pictures of children. Still. It's still gross. But because there, no child was put in danger or whatever, he was not arrested. But at this point, the court ordered um, Josh to undergo like a psychosex psychosexual evaluation. And the analyst had determined, you know, he's had adequate parenting skills, steady employment, no criminal history of domestic violence. Um, he did exhibit like narcissistic traits. He had a hard time like accepting any wrongdoing. Like he, no wrong. he was, yeah. you know, the, Analyst actually recommended that he was able to have supervised visits by a social worker with his kids. So 
so he didn't get custody of him, but he was able to have supervised visits, which ended up being the worst decision possible for the kids. Yeah. On February 5th, 2012, social worker Elizabeth Griffin Hall took the boys to visit Josh in his home. When she arrived, she's taken the boys up to the door and the boys are ahead of her, you know. They run inside. As they run inside, Josh just grins at her and slams the door in her face and locks it. At this point, she calls 911. And she is um, panicking. She's telling the 911 dispatcher, you know, I'm on this supervised visit. He shut the door. He locked me out. He won't let me in. Blah, blah, blah. This 911 dispatcher did not handle the call well at all. So I'm going to actually play the clip for you. I want you to listen to it because it is horrible. And something really weird has happened. The kids went into the house and the parent, the biological parent, whose name is Josh Powell, will not let me in the door. What should I do? What's the address? It's 8119, and I, I think it's 89th. Um, I, I don't know what the address is. Okay. That's pretty important for me to know. Um, sorry, I can't. Just a minute. Let me get in my car and see if I can, if I can find it. I'm, this, nothing like this has ever happened before at um, these visitations, so I'm really um, shocked. And I could hear one of the kids crying, but he still wouldn't let me in. Okay, it is uh, one. Oh, just a minute. I have it here. But I think I need help right away. He he's on a very short lease with DSHS, and CPS has been involved. And this is the craziest thing. He looked right at me and closed the door. Are you there? Yes, ma'am. I'm just waiting to know where you are. Okay. It's 8119 189th Street, Court East, 2 Alec, 98375. And I'd like to pull out of the driveway because I smell gasoline and he won't let me in. You want to pull out of the driveway because you smell gasoline, but he won't let I you... Smell... He won't let me in. He won't let you out of the driveway? He won't let me in the house. Whose house got is the it? kids in the house and he won't let me in. It's a supervised visit. I understand. Whose house is it? Josh Powell. Okay, so you don't live there, right? No, I don't. No, okay. I'm contracted to the state to provide supervised visitation. I see. And how did... The and he's the husband of missing Susan Powell. How did... He, how, this is a high-profile case. How did he... How did he gain access to the children before you got he there? They, they, I was one step in back of them. Okay, so they he went into the house and then he face. locked you out? Yes, he, okay. he shut the door right in my face. All right, now it's clear. Your last name? My name is Elizabeth Griffin Hall. Griffin Hall is hyphenated? Yes. And the kids have been in there by now approximately um, 10 minutes. And he knows this children? is a supervised visit. Two. Brayden is uh, five and Charlie is seven. So in between the two clips, the um, dispatcher is just really taking his sweet time, asking her 
just all these unnecessary questions and kind of just being a jerk. And at the end of the call, you know, she's asking him how much time and he's telling her, oh, we have to answer emergencies first. So here's the second half. All right, we'll have somebody look for you there. Okay, how long will it be? I don't know, ma'am. They have to respond to emergency, life-threatening situations first. The first available deputy... Well, this, could, this could be life-threatening. He went to court on Wednesday, and he he didn't get his kids back. And this is really... I'm, a, I'm afraid for their lives. Okay, has he threatened the lives of the children previously? I have no idea. All right, we'll have the first available deputy contact you. Thank you. Bye. So, I don't know if that frustrated you as much as it frustrated me. It did. Like, I really wanted to reach through the phone and slap the crap out of that guy. Right? Like, he did not handle that well at all. And he was so rude. And she, yeah. life-threatening emergencies. She's like, I'm telling you it's life-threatening. Yeah. Well, just moments after... Hanging up that call, the home exploded with Josh and the kids in it. Dang. Obviously, she calls 911 again, um, lets them know houses exploded, whatever. Obviously, other people are calling 911 at this house because there's been an explosion. Yeah. And um, so now they're taking her serious. They um, send police, firemen, whatever. The boys were found dead in the house, um, super sad, holding hands. That's sad. They both had hatchet wounds in them from their father, who tried to kill them with a hatchet before exploding the house. Sadly, this is horrible, the kids did not die from the hatchet wounds, they died from smoke inhalation. Meaning their dad tried to murder them and then exploded the house. Then they had to sit there and die of smoke inhalation. It took that long for people to get there? It, yes. Like, from the time that she had called, it was, like, ridiculous. I mean, you heard how long that 911 call was. It sounded like it was like a half hour of the guy just wasting time. Absolutely wasting time. And then it took him however long to get the police actually thereafter. I think I read somewhere it was somewhere around like 13 minutes, which, I mean, she's telling him it's life-threatening. Yeah. Get somebody there. Yeah. And then they wait for the house to explode. Like, it's, it's, the whole thing's horrible. So, that is the story of the disappearance of Susan Powell and the murder of Charlie and Brayden Powell. So, they ever really find out what happened to her? They have never found her body. They've had leads. Um, a lot of people speculate that he had dumped her body in one of the mines. There's a lot of mines in the er that area of Utah. Um, they actually... At one point, I want to say 2011-ish. I can't remember the exact year, but 
um, they did go and start digging in a mine and they, they didn't turn anything up. Nothing came of it. And then actually I read somewhere today that in 2022, so just last year, her father, um, Chuck Cox, helped um, and had this company come and dig up a mine that had caved in um, not long after she had gone and disappeared. Like it had been around for hundreds plus years or whatever and then all of a sudden after she disappeared it's caved in and there someone had pointed it out to him I don't know if it was like a tip or whatever and um they just kind of suspected maybe this is where she was they did find bone fragments uh pair of pants it looked like maybe pieces of a shirt a um, bunch of other different things but all of it turned out not to be connected to Susan at all so um they are still looking different places her parents definitely have not given up on her yeah. um they're still looking they they definitely believe she's somewhere out there um in one of the mines and that Josh did something to her so um and my last note says Josh is the worst so that's all I have I agree <laughs> the absolute worst wow that was very interesting story. Yes. I was obsessed with it for quite some time. <laughs> that is all I have for you on that story. Um, if you guys liked our stories and want to like, follow, share, whatever you want to do, we would very much appreciate it. Um, we do have an Instagram, Deathly Afraid Podcast. Uh, we have an email if you want to send any suggestions or a story of your own to deathlyafraidpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, deathlyafraidpod. Oh my gosh, it is. Don't listen to me, people. I don't even know what's going on. It's deathlyafraidpod at gmail.com because I'm a genius. And we will also um, post pictures on our Instagram. I found one of a sketch that somebody had drawn of what they suspect the um, ghost of Deer Island to look like, as well as some pictures of the caves. Cool. And I will definitely post pictures of Susan, Brayden, and Harley. Maybe I'll draw some devil horns on Josh. I don't know. But, uh, Actually, I don't think he deserves a picture, to be honest. No. But definitely Susan. She was beautiful. Beautiful inside and out. She was just a wonderful person. Bubbly personality. And hopefully someday her family does get closure. So Hopefully. Thank you guys for listening. And we will see you next week for another episode. Bye.